I suspect that these glasses belong to someone in the choir. They were left down by the choir robe section. Anybody in the choir or anybody missing a pair of glasses? I've got them. Oh, Marilyn, there you go. You're right. Okay. We are in the Gospel of John, doing a study of the Gospel of John, and specifically focusing as we study this book on John's admonition that really comes at the latter part of his Gospel. In chapter 20, he writes... Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that was John's purpose in writing this gospel, to share signs that Jesus had performed so that in understanding those signs, in Uh, interpreting them and applying them that we could believe that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the Son of God, the Messiah sent from the Father. And this morning, we're in John chapter 4. We're going to conclude the uh, last 10 or so verses of chapter 4 because it's dealing with the second sign. Now, John writes about seven specific signs that Jesus performed in the first 12 chapters of this gospel. Obviously, Jesus performed many more miracles than what John recorded. But John specifically called out these signs that Jesus did to point people to the fact that he was indeed the Messiah, the Son of God. So with each sign, there is a lesson for us to learn. Jesus told the the Pharisees in, in John chapter 10, they were getting ready to stone him. And Jesus said, for which of my good works do you stone me? And they said, we're not stoning you because of the good works you've done. We're stoning you because you, being a man, claim to be God. And Jesus said to them, if you don't believe me because of my words, then believe because of the signs. Because these signs that I perform are done through the power of God. In other words, Jesus was doing them to reveal who he was. So it's very important for us as we go through this gospel to understand that. Some of you are believers. Some of you have a strong faith in Jesus Christ. And these signs will just reinforce what you believe. Some of you who are here, perhaps who are hearing my voice this morning, don't believe. You're curious. You you wonder about this Jesus that you've heard about. Something's been drawing you towards this book. And this message, well, these signs are for you so that you, in hearing about them and studying them, can believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. So, just as way, by way of review, Jesus is coming out of Samaria. Remember, at the beginning of chapter 4, he was coming from Judea, that region of Israel where Jerusalem was where the religious center of the life of the nation was. 
And he was moving out of Judea because the Pharisees were creating a controversy, a division between the disciples of John the Baptist and the disciples of Jesus Christ because Jesus was beginning to uh, baptize more disciples than John the Baptist. And Jesus understood what the Pharisees were trying to do to split that message. John the Baptist and Jesus Christ were not at odds. They were aligned in their mission. John was the forerunner of Jesus Christ. So Jesus left Judea, and it said that he was traveling back to Galilee, and he had to go through Samaria. And of course, we talked about that last week, that typically speaking, an observant Jew would not have gone through Samaria, even though that was the most direct route up to Galilee. Most observant Jews would have gone by way of Transjordan or through Perea because they wanted to avoid the Samaritans. And I won't rehash what we talked about last week. But Jesus there in Sychar in Samaria had a great revival. People began to hear his message because of the testimony of the woman at the well. And again, it's a tremendous lesson for us to learn. This woman at the well who uh, was probably ostracized by the people in her community. She went to the well at noon, which was not the typical time. This woman who was ostracized by her community, Jesus used as a witness to her community to bring them to, to, to him. And the Samaritans, it says in verse 42, said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said, but now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. So after two days, he left for Galilee. And that would have been the two days he spent in Sychar with the Samaritans, just hanging out with them, fellowshipping with them, obviously teaching them about who he was. So he's heading for Galilee now. And it says here in verse 44 that Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Now, three other times in the Gospels, we read about Jesus making this statement that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And each of those Uh, references was dealing with his connection to Galilee and Capernaum, the city that he centered his his ministry in and the city that he was raised in, Nazareth. Because in in those places, and we'll look at this in a moment, uh, the people would not believe because they had a familiarity with Jesus. Is this not Jesus, Joseph and Mary's son? Didn't he grow up among us? How is it that he's performing these works? How is it that he's teaching these things? And so they did not have much faith. And he was without honor there in his own country. But this specific reference is talking about him being without honor in Judea. He left Judea because they were not receiving his testimony, his message. And he did receive honor, however, in Samaria. Samaria. Ultimately, you know, Jesus didn't receive honor from anyone. Because it says in John chapter 1, verse 11, that he came to his own and his own received him not. He came to the Jews. He came to the nation of Israel. But they would not receive him. But to those who did receive him, he said, to them he gave the power to become the sons and the daughters of God. Okay, so when he arrived in Galilee, verse 45, the Galileans welcomed him. And they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. And this is referring back to John chapter 2. We didn't go over this when when I taught John chapter 2, but it's the time where Jesus cast out the money changers from the temple the first time. And he said to them, 
destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it, referring to his body and the third day resurrection. But they thought he was speaking of the temple of Herod that was 46 years in its construction. And so they had seen the works that he had done there, and they were impressed by them, and so they were very excited to see him. Now, you need to understand about Galilee in comparison with Judea. Galilee was considered backwoods. Galilee was considered unsophisticated. It was considered a place that um, it wasn't as bad as Samaria, but if you were an upper crust uh, Jew, Galilee was a place to avoid. It had been an area that had been conquered several times. There were many Gentile uh, armies that had come and gone through Galilee. And so Galilee, they even talked about, and we'll, we'll get to that, this in the Gospel of John, uh, the accent of the Galileans. They talked funny. So they just weren't the kind of people you wanted to hang around with. Now, think about this. If you're the Messiah, and you're coming to uh, the nation that you have chosen, that God has chosen out of all of the world to bring you forth into the world, wouldn't you center your ministry there where the religious life was at? Jerusalem? It seems logical, doesn't it? And Jesus, in fact, did spend some time in Jerusalem. But most of his time, he spent in the region of Galilee. And this is in fulfillment of prophecy. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 15, quoting out of Isaiah chapter 9, we read this. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So Jesus began his ministry, and focused his ministry. Most of the three years, three and a half years he ministered were conducted in Galilee. Not exactly the place you would think that the Messiah might go. Why is that? Well, as we read here, Matthew quoting Isaiah, it was in fulfillment of prophecy that Jesus did this that the Messiah would go to Galilee and that a light would dawn upon that place that was in darkness, in the shadow of death. Prophecy is an amazing evidence of the veracity of this book and of the actual nature of Jesus Christ who Jesus was, because he fulfilled prophecies that were written in the Old Testament about the Messiah. I have a book in my library called All of the Messianic Prophecies in the Bible. And there's over 300 prophecies that relate to the Messiah. It's, it's a thick book. It's actually, the book itself is about 500 pages. But there's over 300 prophecies that relate to the Messiah. Prophecies just like this out of Isaiah chapter 9 that spoke of what the Messiah would do, where he would center his ministry. Now, there was a man, and I've shared this with some of you before. He was a mathematician from the University of Chicago, a probability expert, and he was a believer. His name was Peter Stoner. And he, using the science of probability, he wrote this book called Science Speaks. And 
in that book, he calculated the odds of a person fulfilling just eight messianic prophecies. And of these eight prophecies, it was Stoner's calculation that for a person to fulfill those eight prophecies, the odds against that would have been one in ten to the seventeenth power. Now stop and think about what ten to the seventeenth power is. It would be like taking the state of Texas, covering it with silver dollars to a depth of two feet. And out of all of those silver dollars, one of them has to be picked up on the first try. That's what the odds of 1 in 10 to the 17th power are. And that's someone completing just eight of the Messianic prophecies. Stoner went on, calculated what it, the odds would be of someone completing 48 of the prophecies. And to complete 48 of the prophecies, Stoner calculated it would be 1 in 10 to the 157th power. So that changes the, the dynamic a little bit. Now, instead of silver dollars covering the state of Texas, electrons cover the state of Texas. An electron is a, one of the very smallest things within creation. So the odds are extraordinarily beyond scope of actually being fulfilled. That's 48 prophecies. Jesus, in coming, his first coming, fulfilled almost all of the 300 prophecies. The odds of anyone doing that are astronomical. And, just to complete this thought, for someone to do it today would be impossible. Because someone could not come today and say that they were a descendant of David because the genealogical records were destroyed in 70 AD when the Roman general Titus destroyed the temple. So in Matthew chapter 1 and in Luke chapter 3, Jesus has a genealogical history going back to Abraham in Matthew and going back to Adam in Luke. So it would be impossible for anyone today to fulfill the prophecies with regards to the Messiah. Jesus was ministering in Galilee in fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus did almost all of the 300 prophecies, the ones that remain for the Messiah to be fulfilled, will all deal with the Messiah coming the second time. Do you suppose Jesus is going to fulfill those as well? I think so. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the King. So Jesus is this extraordinary human being. He, he comes and he ministers in a fashion that is absolutely in fidelity to the prophecies in this book. And that's why he's in Galilee, a place that you might not expect the Messiah to go. But that is why he is there. Once more, it says in verse 46, he visited Cana in Galilee where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is a little fishing village right along the Sea of Galilee. And when this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was very close to death. 
So this royal official, we don't know exactly what the nature of his role was, but he probably was in Herod's house, Herod uh, Antipas, who was the tetrarch over the region of Galilee. Not really a king, but he was a son of Herod the Great, and he had some authority. He was over this region at the, uh, with the investment of the power of the Roman Empire. So, so Herod had this person in his uh, cabinet, if you will, and this man had a son who was close to death. And he heard about Jesus returning to Galilee. So he came from Capernaum up to Cana. Now this is a journey of anywhere, depending upon uh, your means of transportation and your pathway, of four to eight hours. So it's about a day's journey that this man traveled to see Jesus. I find it fascinating that people will come to Jesus for a lot of different reasons. But this man came because he was desperate. He knew the need that existed in his home. His son was about to die. He knew that need could not be met by anyone but Jesus Christ. So he traveled to Cana to see Jesus and asked him to come to Capernaum and to heal his son. And Jesus' response here is very interesting. He said, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. So Jesus here is chastising that sort of focus on signs and wonders, the, the desire to see the miraculous. Now, that seems to be somewhat contradictory to the fact that this is a sign that Jesus is going to perform. Jesus is not saying to this man or to any of us that there's anything wrong with miraculous work. We've seen that throughout the gospel. Many of you have seen that in your own lives. You can give testimony to the fact that God still works in miraculous ways. It's not the miraculous that is the problem. It is the desire and the focus, the desire to see and the focus upon the miraculous rather than the Messiah. It's focusing on the gift versus the giver of the gift. And so Jesus chastises them. In, in several other places in, in the Gospels, in Mark chapter 6, um, in, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus gets after the people and says to them, you know, a wicked and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And, and in, 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 in Matthew, or excuse me, I think it's Mark chapter 6, he, he says to Chorazin and to Capernaum, the cities where he performed many of his greatest miracles. He said, you know, if these miracles had been performed in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented long ago. And yet you don't believe, even though these miracles were performed in your presence. So Jesus is chastising the kind of faith that focuses on the gift rather than the giver. And it's important for us today because signs and wonders are going to begin uh, to play a role in our world very soon. There's a passage in 2 Thessalonians that talks about the coming of the Antichrist. And Paul says that the Antichrist um, 
when he comes, he says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or his worship so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things and now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. And the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that will serve the lie. So signs and wonders, if you're seeking after the sign or the wonder, Jesus says here, you're missing the mark. You're going to be vulnerable to deception. If you read through uh, Revelation chapter 13 specifically, it talks about the false prophet and the Antichrist and the signs that are performed in that time. And I believe that we are very much approaching a time in our world where we're going to see some amazing things is that going to be enough to turn you from this word that's what jesus is pointing out jesus performed signs and wonders in Chorazin and capernaum and they didn't believe because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of god it's not the sign or wonder it is the word of god that causes faith to to be birthed And Jesus is chastising here the people for seeking signs and wonders. But the royal official response, he's desperate. He's he's not going to be be held back. He's not going to be stopped. He says, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said, go, your son will live. So Jesus is a great distance away. He speaks the word and says that his son will live. And look what happens here. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. He didn't ask him, well, how? How? How is he going to be well? Lord, you're four hours away from him. Don't you need to come to my house and to lay hands on him and to pray? But he doesn't ask any of those questions. He simply takes Jesus at his word and departs. And while he was still on the way, returning back to Capernaum, his servants met him with the news that his boy was still living. And when he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Now, I find this interesting because it would have been the day before at one o'clock when Jesus spoke this word, go, your son will live. Now, the man could have easily returned that same day to Capernaum. Even if it was eight hours back, if he was going the slowest route, he could have made it back that same day. Don't you think that if he was desperately concerned about the welfare and the life of his son, that he would have motored back to Capernaum as as quickly as he could? But he didn't. He's returning the next day. Because he took Jesus at his word. He knew. He understood that his son was well. He did not need to rush back. When he asks about the timing, it in fact does connect the son's healing to the time Jesus gave the command. But the man was not concerned about it. 
he went on his way taking Jesus at his word. And I think that's a really powerful lesson for us as we study this word and as we enter into discipleship with Jesus Christ to do exactly this, to take Jesus at his word. Distrust his word to mean what it says and says, says what it means. So the father realized this was the exact time which Jesus had said to him, your son will live, and he and his whole household believed. The father no doubt believed that his son was well. The, the evidence of that was obvious, but I think the depth of belief here is, is more significant than that. He believed that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. Now, this is a, a bit of a stretch, but I think it's a logical stretch. Who was this man that had his son healed by Jesus Christ? Well, in this passage, we don't have his identity revealed, but in Luke chapter 8, it talks about Jesus's uh, contingent that went with him everywhere as he traveled and said that in Luke chapter 8 that Jesus traveled about from town to town from village to village proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God and the 12 were with him and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had come out Joanna the wife of Chusa the manager of Herod's household Susanna and many others these were helping to support him out of their own means Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the steward or the manager of Herod's household. Do you suppose that this man was Chusa? Herod's manager? I think it's very possible because I think Joanna, after her son was healed from near death, became a disciple, believed in Jesus Christ. And I think Chusa was glad to send his wife off in support of the ministry of Jesus Christ. We read about this also in, in Acts chapter 16 about the jailer uh, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ after the, the jail was destroyed by an earthquake. And, and Paul and the prisoners could have escaped, but they didn't. They said, we're all here. And they proclaimed the gospel to him, and it says that he believed and his whole household. The impact that you can have on your home and your family as a believer is it's really incalculable. You can touch your family through prayer, through witness, through testimony, through the life that you lead and the words that you share. You can, and I believe most will, influence their families to faith. Certainly that is what happened here. And this then was the second sign that Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. So, what does the sign say to us? I think what it says to me is that Jesus has power over sickness. We read in Isaiah 53 that by his stripes we have been healed. I think Jesus has power over sickness. But what, one thing I want to emphasize here, and I think is very important for us to understand, is that Chusa's son ultimately still died. He was healed, but ultimately he still died. See, healing from disease or sickness is only a foretaste, if you will, of the ultimate healing that occurs through belief, through faith in Jesus Christ rising from the dead. Because when we believe and we become new creatures in Christ, death and sickness, though we may in fact 
that may in fact lead us to death physically, spiritually speaking, we are never ever going to be separated from God. So for, the, for me, the message is a, a foretaste, a, a pointing towards the reality of God's control over and mastery of death. And that's what the gospel's all about. Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. It says in Revelation 1.17 that I have the keys of death and of hell. It is me. I was dead, but now I am alive forevermore. So this second sign points us to the fact that Jesus, in a temporal sense, has power over sickness and over disease. But in an ultimate sense, he is the one in whom we must trust to have new life that will never, ever be taken away from us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the promise that you have given to us in your word that even with a mustard seed of faith, we can move a mountain. I pray for those in this congregation right now, Lord, who are struggling with sickness, with disease, with physical challenges, Lord. I lift them up to you in Jesus' name, and I pray for healing, for your hand to be upon them. But more so even than that, Lord, I pray for each and every one to receive that ultimate healing that comes through the new birth, comes through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.